Imagine it's 1774 and that you live in Virginia. You've recently heard about an event that happened in Massachusetts that some have started to call the Destruction of the Tea, a much less creative name for the Boston Tea Party, for which the name would come about around the 1820s. But ever since that event, Parliament has passed five new acts called the Cohesive Acts, which is a less, much less common name for what the colonies preferred to call it, the Intolerable Acts. So, as you can probably tell, they were really loved acts. They were like beloved acts, but besides the point. The acts consisted of the Boston Port Act, the Massachusetts Government Act, the Administration of Justice Act, the Quartering Act, and lastly, the Quebec Act. As you look at these new acts hanging up in the square, you realize you need to take a stand against the British by forming a meeting. Hi, this is Don't Ask Me Why I Know This, a podcast, is a podcast dedicated to these new things that I happen to know a lot about. Today's episode is a part two to last month's American Revolution. Alright, let's get started. It's September 5th, 1774, and for a man like George Washington, you're ready to take a stand against the British. He forms a meeting with a few people you've probably heard of before, like John Adams, Samuel Adams, John Jay, and more. I mean, if you can't tell, Adams was like a really popular last name. You're like Adams, Jay, those were both like really popular, Ford, those were both really, really popular last names, but anyways, so they call a meeting called the Continental Congress. Continental Congress sent Britain's King George III a petition to address grievances among them. They also wanted to send a repeal of the so-called Intolerable Acts. A mass boycott of British goods was underway, and Boston Harbor still languished under a British blockade as punishment for the Boston Tea Party. In a speech to Parliament in late 1774, King George had denounced the daring spirit of resistance and obedience to the law, which seemed to be spreading like wildfire across the American continent. When they saw no change in the foreseeable future, roughly 120 delegates gathered for the Second Continental Congress. There are quite some famous names there, like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson. There are also five out of other, of six Virginians that would later sign the Declaration of Independence. One of the men who attended was Patrick Henry. He was a lawyer who felt strongly about the rights of the colonies. He then gave his famous, give me liberty or give me death speech. You know, probably something you've heard of. Soon after, things really picked up, and on April 18th, Paul Revere has his famous ride. The next day was the Battle of Lexington and Concord. Yay, made the actual war. There are two sides of how the Battle of Lexington and Concord goes. I'll tell you the most well-known. It was April 18, 1775, in Massachusetts. It was the middle of the night. Suddenly, hundreds of British soldiers marched from Boston to Concord in order to seize an arms cache. Paul Revere and their riders sounded the alarm, and colonial military soldiers started mobilizing to intercept Historically, it's widely believed that the colonists shot first. This is the account of the British soldiers. But, I mean, who are you really going to trust? The British soldiers supposedly didn't fire first because of direct orders from the king not to escalate it until first fired upon. After, um, after the colonists were shooting, the, after the first shot happened, which was known as the shot heard around the world, the British troops started attacking, and so began the American Revolution. 
Oh, you thought we were done? No, we, we are just getting started. On May 10th, two very important things happened. One, Ethan Allen and his militia of Green Mountain boys, but, I mean, that is a whole other street story, attacked and seized the British for Ticonderoga without firing a single shot. And the second most important thing was the, me the third meeting of the Continental Congress. This is, in my opinion, is arguably one of the most important meetings of the war. So, I mean, I'd listen if, were, if I were you. The Third Continental Congress met inside Independence Hall, beginning in May 1775. It was just a month after the shot had been fired at Lexington and Concord, and the Congress was preparing for war. They established a Continental Army and left George Washington as Commander-in-Chief. But the delegates also drafted the Olive Branch Petition, to King George III in hopes of reaching a peaceful resolution. The king refused to hear the petition and declared the American colonies at war. On June 7, 1776, Virginia delegate Richard Henry Lee put forth the resolution for independence, resolved that these United Colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. Voting was postponed while some of the delegates were convinced others to support independence, but a committee of five men was assigned to draft a document of independence. John Adams of Massachusetts, Benjamin Franklin of Pennsylvania, Thomas Jefferson of Virginia, Roger Sherman of Connecticut, and Robert L. Livingston of New Jersey. Jefferson did most of the work, drafting the document in his lodgings at 7th and Market Street. On June 17th, the Battle of Bunker Hill takes place. This was a very important battle because even though we lost, it showed that we could hold our own against the British, who had much superior weapons and much more experience with fighting. Like, in my personal opinion, this was pretty much the most important battle to come out of all this because it really just showed that, like, you know, you could, even with, like, the big army as the British who, you know, just came out of the Seven Year War and, you know, had so much more experience than everyone else. It really just showed that the colonists could like actually hold their own in a battle. I mean, it was a really close battle. They lost a lot more people than us. It was like, a, it was a really important battle in my opinion. Um, and the British had twice as many casualties as the Americans and lost many officers. Soon after this battle, a lot of important things happened, like the U.S. Navy was established, the first siege of City 6 happened, the war moved up geographically to what now is Canada. After the Americans took Montreal, there was a battle in Vancouver and South Canada. There was also the Snow Campaign in South Canada and the Battle of Quebec. Basically, what happened was it started to come wintertime, and Washington took all of his troops and moved all the way up to Quebec and they took some South Canada and they stationed out there so they could like regroup for a little while but that I mean that clearly did not work out because we lost all of that but um then the British were like okay well let's go meet them there and surround them and they had the big battle over there in South Canada a few months later the Declaration of Independence was adopted by Congress Skipping forward a year, Washington and his army winter in the very, very famous Valley Forge. This is probably, like, one of my favorite parts of history because, I mean, it is, it is dark. I'm warning you, this is dark stuff right now. 
this is definitely not fun. I wouldn't recommend. Not. I, I personally wouldn't recommend. On December 1777, General George Washington moved the Continental Army to their winter quarters at Valley Forge. The reason they were making this expedition was because of the rebel capital, Philadelphia, fell into British hands. By the time the army washed, marched into Valley Forge on December 19th, they were suffering not only from cold, hunger, and fatigue, but they were also, they were also able to survive because of Washington's leadership. Um, Washington also described Valley Forge as a dreary kind of place and uncomfortably provided. Only 20 miles from British-occupied Philadelphia and eastern Pennsylvania, Valley Forge presented a strategic location that allowed Washington's army to stay close to the city while maintaining a defensible position that offered access to clean water and firewood. However, in spite of these advantages, Washington's army was ill-prepared for the encampment that would last six months. The army's supply of basic necessities, like food and clothing, ran perpetually short, coupled with the wintertime cold and the disease that ran rampant through the camp. Slavical provisions created the famously miserable conditions at Valley Forge. The army camp at Valley Forge consisted of many as 12,000 continentals as well as num small numbers of women and children, including officers' wives, or including officers and their wives, having joined the husbands or family members in the encampment. While wintering in the camp, soldiers worked together to build huts for shelter, but unsanitary conditions and shortages of food and blankets contributed to the disease and exhaustion, which eventually continually plagued the camp. The lack of clothing alone, including shoes, socks, and coats, left as many as 3,000 of Washington's troops unfit for service, creating the image of starving, weary clothing, leaving behind bloodied footprints in the snow and ice. A Continental Army private, Joseph Plum Barton, wrote that the Army's new winter quarters left them in a truly forlorn condition, no clothing or provisions, as disheartened as need be. The Washington pleaded with the Continental Congress and state governors to obtain food and supplies for a suffering army. Starvation and such diseases as typhus and smallpox, and lack of protection from the elements, caused the death of more than 2,000 soldiers. Washington eventually resorted to sending men, led by Nathaniel Green, who was a spy, by the way, on foraging missions to procure what provisions could be found in the surrounding countryside. Beyond vying with Congress for the supplies that his de army desperately needed, Washington had also contend with threats to his authority that came from ordeals like the Conway Cable and rivalries between military leaders. Washington's steady leadership was crucial to keeping the army intact through the logistical and administrative hardships of the winter of 1777 to 1778, and it's likely encountered by the fact that there was never a mass desertion or mutiny at Valley Forge. Despite brutal conditions, Valley Forge marked a milestone in the army's military experience. In February 1778, Baron Frederick von Steuben arrived at Valley Forge where Washington appointed him unofficial inspector general of the camp shortly thereafter. The Baron worked to bring uniformity to the Continental soldiers who had seen combat but lacked the martial training to pose an effective threat to the British. He developed a system of drill for the entire army and taught the men combat maneuvers that equipped them to rival the well-trained British regulars. Steuben's previous experience in the Prussian army during the Seven Years' War prepared him to oversee the military training Washington's men so desperately needed. 
By the end of the encampment in Valley Forge, the army had undergone a significant transformation from ragtag and brave recruits to an ordered and disciplined fighting force. The Marquise Lafayette, a French officer who provided another noteworthy addition to Washington's staff at Valley Forge, Lafayette arrived at the camp with the army in December 1777. Lafayette was actually really well known um, for being a close friend of Alexander Hamilton. He was someone who Hamilton trusted, and he also helped with the final battle, which we'll talk about soon. But he helped um, he helped win the American Revolution. He was a big part of it. But unfortunately, when Lafayette went back to France after the whole thing um, and tried to help with the French Revolution, he was eventually killed. But he helped a lot with the American Revolution. He had a big part in it. Um, Lafayette became popular among the Continentals and well-known for his dedication both to General Washington and the American cause. News of a French alliance with the Americans came in May 1778. A few weeks before the army's departure from camp, from camp in June of the same year, revitalized, um, revitalized, reorganized, and uniformly trained, the army would forge ahead and display their newfound professionalism and discipline at the Battle of Monument in June 1778. Valley Forge was significant not only for reshaping Washington's army, but for the dedication, endurance, and resilience demonstrated by the Americans in their cause for independence. Washington um, Washington was someone who went through a lot of hardship at Valley Forge, but he eventually came out as uh, a really strong leader. Um, finally, after seven, several more years of continuous fighting, in 1781, the Battle of Yorktown took place. The Battle of Yorktown was really interesting because I think, like, well, I personally think the Battle of Yorktown was really interesting because it proved to be the decisive engagement of the American Revolution. The British surrender forecast the end of British rule in the colonies and the birth of a new nation, the United States. American victory outnumbered and outfought during a three-week siege in which they sustained great losses. British troops surrendered to the Continental Army and their French allies. This last major land battle of the American Revolution led to negotiations for peace with the British and the signing of the Treaty in Paris in 1783. After six years of a little bit of context, after six years of war, both the British and Continental Armies were exhausted. The British, in hostile territory, held only a few, like five more coastal areas in America. On the other side of the Atlantic, Britain was also waging a global war with France and Spain. The American conflict was unpopular and decisive, and there was no end in sight. For the colonies, the long struggle for independence was leading to enormous debt, food shortages, and a lack of morale. Both sides were definitely seeking a definitive victory. General George Washington and his Continental Army had a decision to make in the spring of 1781. They could strike a decisive blow to the British in New York or aim for the South. In Yorktown, Virginia, where General Charles Lord Cornwallis' troops were garrisoned, Washington and his French ally, Lieutenant General Rochambeau, bet on the south, where they were assured critical naval support from a French fleet commanded by Comte de Grasse. The Allied armies marched hundreds of miles from their headquarters 
north of New York City to Yorktown, making theirs the largest troop movement of the American Revolution. The surprise of British and a siege that turned the tide toward the American victory in the war for independence. In the fall of 1781, the British occupy Yorktown, where Cornwallis intends to refit and supply his 9,000-man army. While he awaits supplies and much-needed reinforcements from the Royal Navy, the Continental Army seizes an opportunity. On receiving word that the French fleet will be available for the south of New Jersey, Washington and Rochambeau move their force of almost 8,000 men to South Virginia, planning to join and lead about 12,000 to 13,000 other militia, uh, French troops and Continental troops in a siege of Yorktown. On September 5th, while the Allied army is still en route, the French fleet guards the entrance to Cheapskate Bay. The Royal Navy, attempting to sail up to the Bay of Cornwallis, is met by French warships at the mouth of Cheapskate. In a encounter called the Battle of Capes, the British fleet is soundly defeated and forced to abandon Cornwallis' army at Yorktown. The Battle of Yorktown marks the collapse of British war efforts. Later, it is said that the British band played the tune, The World is Turned Upside Down, during the surrender at Yorktown, an epithelial story that has become American folklore. But the world truly changes as that day as military operations of the war for independence cease. While news of Cornwallis' surrender reaches London on November 25th, the Prime Minister Lord North declares, Oh God, it is all over, it is all over. On March 5, 1782, Parliament passes a bill authorizing the government to make peace with America. Lord North resigns 15 days later. Although it takes America two more years of skillful diplomacy to fully secure their independence through the Treaty of Paris, the war is won with the British defeat at Yorktown. The estimated casualties are, I mean, are truly amazing. With an estimation of about 8,978 in total, there was only 389 American casualties and 8,589 British casualties. With America coming in with an army about 13,000 plus a bunch of French, they had a lot to work with and the British had a lot more. So it's really surprising when you consider the fact that they won in the first place. This was over the course of six years, so everyone was just exhausted. And the Treaty of Paris was still not signed for two more years, which marked this official, but hey, I mean, a win is a win. Um, that's it. That's the end of Don't Ask Me Why I Know This, episode two. Thanks for listening. Make sure to join me next month so you can be asked why you know something.